When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch episode 14, covering United New York City on January 28th, 2011 from BB King's Blues Club in New York City. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on the dedicated Open the Voice Gate feed as well on every podcast platform and application. You can find us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined alongside, as always, by my co-host and good friend, Case Lowe. Case, how's it going? Oh, Mike, I'm doing all right. I'm very excited to break into the calendar year of 2011 in the Dragon Gate USA universe. There's a lot of stuff I have seen that I look forward to revisiting. There's a few shows that I haven't seen that I'm looking forward to now having an excuse to Go back, waste some time, and watch them, and then more importantly, discuss them with you, my good friend, Iron Mike Spears. Yeah, this is an interesting time, both in Dragon Gate USA, and we're getting into it paralleling such an interesting time in Dragon Gate Japan that it's going to be exciting to go over, and it kicked off with this New York City show. Before we get into this, uh, just wanted to just address something. We were recording this show on june 23rd we usually record these about two weeks in advance just in case you know how things if we don't have time and like this we always have so to go but events over the last week and the actions and the the things coming out amongst the speaking out campaign and the great gross injustice that has been committed towards a lot of female wrestlers and fans and just the overall wrestling community has really kind of shaken everything up. There has been people who have been named. We, of course, believe all the the victims here. We hope that they have whatever form of restorative justice and healing that could come out of it. But it's something that in this series, we can't avoid talking about some of these people. And I, at least I speak only for myself, and I'll let Case take, take the mic in a second. I plan on covering this as the historical thing. 
in my in our at least my coverage of this is no way endorsing the actions of some of these people here entirely understand for some people and that is totally your choice if it's something that you're like oh these people being brought up i can't engage with this media i don't see that as any personal slight and i hope that all the uh, victims again get whatever restorative justice they can have and healing and hopefully take this as an opportunity to better the overall wrestling world yeah just real quickly uh, on top of what mike said which i think he uh, said very well but you know specifically on this show uh we're going to be talking about an austin aries match that is coming you know we're recording this hours after allegations of austin aries misconduct broke and that sucks and i'm not in the mood to talk about an austin aries match tonight but I also find the historical record of what we're doing archiving these shows uh, to be important. So when we talk about that match, which I will not be for long because this week specifically, I'm not in any mood to really discuss him. Uh, again, it's it's for a historical purpose for down the road uh, that that we will be breaking down, you know, his matches. And, you know, hopefully, you know, that's the only story that affects this podcast in a very selfish way. You know, hopefully that's the only one that we have to deal with, but who knows with everything that's happening right now. Uh, but yeah, I, I echo everything Mike said. Okay. So with all of that, we have started a new year in Drengate USA. It is now 2011, which means if you're keeping track of the product of the project, we're already 14 shows in, or this will be our 14th show. There's only about 30 more left to go. So we, we've reached about the one third mark here case, but we ended last episode because we knew that there was so much to talk about closing out the year of 2010 in both Dragon Gate USA and in Dragon Gate. But now it's time to crack open the new calendar. It is 2011, and there's a lot of stuff that even happens before the show in January. Yeah, so for the timeline this week, it's it's uh, probably a little bit more of what's happening in Japan than it is in Dragon Gate USA. So for all of the DGUSA-specific newswires, uh, that I'm about to run down, I'll just run down these so we can get them out of the way and then we can focus on what is going on in Japan. And to understand how we got to United New York City, we have to go back to November 1st when Gabe Sapolsky announces that the sensational high flyer Pac will return to DGUSA in 2011 for several dates, including this triple shot at the start of the year. As it turns out, Pac is on every show in 2011, which is uh, just a, a delightful turn of events uh, there was also around this time a big campaign on the dragon gate usa website a banner at the top of the screen that read it's coming with 11 10 stylized below it and we found out on november 22nd 2010 that the major news that dragon gate usa is finally heading into new york city not only that, but our show will be in Times Square at the BB King's Blues Club and Grill on January 28th, which will be the first stop on the triple shot of the Open the United Gate Tournament. And we get a note on December 10th that Naruki Doi, who has been shaking things up in Japan, has demanded to be included into the tournament since he is one half of the current Open the Twin Gate champions uh, in Japan with Gamon. This is on December 10th, 2010. His request has been granted. However, Doi stated he will prove he is the best tag team wrestler in the world by choosing another partner to win the Open the United Gate, Open the United Gate titles with. And he sent word that as of now, his partner is a mystery. We also get the rules 
on December 10th that we will see four teams compete in a round-robin tournament all over the three shows. That means Manhattan, Philadelphia, and Union City will get two main event quality Dragon Gate-style tag team matches, and the participants are Doi and his mystery partner. It is Pac and Masato Yoshino representing World 1. It is, at the time of this newswire, Shima and Dragon Kid representing Warriors, and Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor representing Ronan. There was a note in there that Mike Quackenbush was very upset that there were no Chikara Sekigun members included. So although we talked about in the last episode about how Chikara was being phased out, they are still being mentioned, and we have Chikara talent on this show, but their role in the company is being greatly phased out over time. January 4th, it is announced that Open the Freedom Gate champion B.B. Hulk has accepted the John Moxley challenge of the Kamikaze Gauntlet, so he will face for the Open the Freedom Gate title on this United New York City show, Yamato. If he defends there, he will go on to Philly to defend against John Moxley, and if he defends there, he will go on to defend against Akira Tozawa in Union City, New Jersey. Also on January 4th, just for more of a historical context as to where we are in the wrestling landscape, Wrestle Kingdom 5 from the Tokyo Dome, which featured matches such as Rob Van Dam versus Toru Yano, Prince Devitt versus Kota Ibushi, Jeff Hardy versus Tetsuya Naito, and Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Satoshi Kojima. Mike, real quick, any strong thoughts on Wrestle Kingdom 5? It's just like a wild time because of when it was and where New Japan was. Like, as we enter 2011, things are going to change in Japan very drastically. And I felt like I made a mention this to you today that we should mention the show just so that everyone gets an overall idea of what the context was in Japan. So it, it's wild thinking about that Wrestle Kingdom card, thinking that it's now, as of the time of recording, only 90 years away, uh, away. And it's completely different how the promotion is now than it was in 2011. Three matches that I didn't mention that just this is a super, super long card, but three matches that I didn't realize happened on the show. Koji Kanemoto and Raisuke Taguchi against Kenny Omega and Taichi. A Bad Intentions versus Beer Money versus Manubu Nakanishi and Strongman match. Muscle and Orchestra, off- Rich, Rich Krejci's favorite tag team. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and Takashi Segura and Yoshihiro Takayama versus Hiroki Goto and Kazuchika Okada. What a what a bizarre show that is exact that's exactly it we're pre New Japan boom at this point Mike in the western stratosphere from what you can remember who's is there a top dog in the western fans that enjoy Japanese wrestling or are they all losers in this race You know it's really interesting like something that I've done that we'll be talking about a lot more on future shows is the since it's the end of the year talking about the awards here but for the most part, like New Japan, of course, always had a level of cachet because it was New Japan. But when you take a look at like awards and everything like this, Dragon Gate people, other than Takashi Sugara, he was someone that was really well thought of. But just as a little teaser, the top New Japan person in the Thez Award for 2010 is seventh. And there's two people who were affiliated at Dragon Gate USA over the, the calendar year of 2010. I take that back. Prince Devitt is number four. So there's someone else also but it's really it's a real smorgasbord and this really is kind of like i would say like this was like the tail end of the ukes era they announced forty two thousand, and they claimed eighteen thousand, which would be a disaster if that happened 
nowadays. And then, of course, this is like a big thing about Satoshi Kojima at this time was still a freelancer working in all Japan, and he was defending it against Hiroshi Tanahashi, who stayed in New Japan. That was the big storyline there. And interesting note, according to Dave Meltzer, that this was tied with the 2007 Tokyo Dome show as the smallest attendance in its history. So the real nadir of New Japan. January 14th, 2011, it is announced that Playboy Playmate and 2009 Miss Howard Stern, Rebby Sky, will be involved at all three shows of this Northeast triple shot. As Gabe says in the Newswire, and I quote, We aren't sure why she wants to be on these events, but we sure are going to welcome her. Check out www.rebbysky.com for some incredible picks. End quote. Thanks for that, Gabe. Uh, and then finally, on a less weird note, January 17th, Gabe says, after the recent happenings in Japan, which we'll discuss in just a second, Naruki Doi has formed one huge stable and has announced his tag team partner for the Open the United Gate title tournament. And that man is Ricochet. So we now transition into Japan before we can talk about all of the hijinks that Naruki Doi has been up to. Well, I guess it actually factors into our first note. January 10th, Masaki Mochizuki and Don Fuji defeat Gamma and Naruki Doi for the Open the Twin Gate titles. And then after that match, Don Fuji challenges Masato Yoshino for the Open the Dream Gate title. Now, Mike, was this show filmed? Because I don't think I've ever seen that Twin Gate match. I don't think it was filmed, even though this was like a kickoff show, their traditional kickoff show at Body Maker 2. So... I do remember Mochi Fuji winning the titles, but I don't remember seeing the title match. And I certainly do not remember the challenge there because uh, during this time, people have different quirks on how they decide the next challenger for the Dream Gate. Of course, later we'd have the Shima Battle Royale. There was key, there was key finding matches, which were something that was kind of thrown to the wayside for a good reason. But Masato Yoshino would draw a ball out of a box. It was called the Yoshino Lottery. And apparently uh, Don Fuji somehow came into uh, contact with a Don Fuji Yoshino Lottery ball. And that's how he justified this title shot. Uh, At this point, it's worth noting, we do have notes and translations from Jay at iHeartDG and on Twitter at DG underscore J. So we'll be going with those as well, which is pretty helpful at this time. But I just want to read you this quote from iHeartDG because I do remember this happening. I don't remember ever seeing this. He said, uh, as Mochizuki f- thanked the fans and told him look forward to both Mochi Fuji in 2011, closeout said it was time to go drink with the Twin Gate Championship. As he started to leave, Don Fuji stopped him, then he called out Yoshino. And then, Yosh- and then Don Fuji said he had something else to add. He wanted a challenge. He had something else to add into it. He called out Super Shenlong, who, of course, at this time would become the future problem dragon Monday Ryu. Shenlong came out and, I quote, displaying a much larger bulge in his tights than normal. He... Uh, Fuji reached in and produced a Yoshino lottery ball that read Don Fuji. Yoshino chastised Shenlong for bringing a fake ball. Don Fuji swore it was genuine, and he claimed he found it on, on the floor in the back of King Gate of Destiny. So then Yoshino had to accept, and Don Fuji would be the next person to hold Adrian Gate key. Don Fuji is the trickster case. Oh, he is he is up to no good always, uh, but somehow... Not the most evil member on the roster, as we would find out on January 14th as Drangate headed to Osaka, uh, the number two gymnasium, as we got the Osaka show, which featured, I'll run down the card just quickly, Shima, Dragon Kid, and Ricochet defeating 
Gamma, Naoki, Tanizaki, and Naruki Doi. Super Shenlong and the eventual T-Hawk defeating Kotoka and Shisa Boy. Super Shisa defeating KNS in a singles match that I would very much like to see, but I do not think it made TV. Don Fuji defeating Yosushi Kanda in a singles match. And the main event, a match that I rewatch, it is Dragon Gate Infinity 205. BB Hulk, Masato Yoshino, and Susumu Yokosuka defeat Cyber Kong, Kagator, and Yamato in a belter of a six-man tag, but Mike, it is not the match that we are here to talk about. What happened after this match? So, to go back a little bit beforehand, everything in the news in Dragon Gate is that we had six masked people. They were wearing what were called Metal Warrior masks that looked a lot like from the movie 300. The only real hint that they had is that one of them could do a standing shooting star press, and that Yoshino tried to unmask one of them, but just had another mask underneath. But the thing that happened after this match case was hulk and kong were arguing of course they are not as career rivals in the same level as hulk and shingo takagi of course but you know they were contemporaries in new hazard and kong was a part of the huge turn when they made new hazard into real hazard but they started arguing about their upcoming match then yoshino wanted to close out the show but at this moment and in in ring one of the more like best remembered moments and something that i did not have the chance to go back and watch this but i still have this very ingrained in my head you saw up on the balcony you saw four metal masks and they didn't really light them well but they but you had like the blue background that they always used to light things and then you had like one spotlight on you had four masks out there yoshino was already frustrated and told him to, sh- to call himself because it seemed like these masks were going after world one so you they tried to unmask them but then five people showed up five more masked men they were wearing masks and the closest thing and uh, to, to compare it to, they basically were wearing black fatigues underneath that, and including a man in a gold mask. All nine attacked World 1, and then we noticed that certain moves were performed. We saw a 619, a dragon suplex. Kness was the person who got the standing shooting star this time. Uh, Susumu got a Mysterio Rana. Katoka got a beach break. And then Yoshino was attacked by the gold mask, who seemed like the leader. And he it was a thrush kick and swine. The five that were... That came down later, unmasked, and it ended up being all five of Warriors, Talking Shima, Dragon Kid, uh, Ryo Saito, Ginky, Horiguchi, and Ricochet, and then the original four masks, un- the original four unmasked reveal team Doi, of course that is Naruki, Doi, Naoki, Tanazaki, uh, Yasushi, Kanda, and KZ, and they have announced that the that the nine members have aligned together and that team Doi and Warriors were no more. Case. One of the biggest angles in company history that led to what is widely considered to be a golden era of the company in terms of a storytelling perspective, in terms of the and ring. I'm excited, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's so much Dragon Gate USA in 2011 that I like, that I've seen, and there's you know some stuff that I haven't discovered. I'm also thrilled that this is going to give me the opportunity to rewatch a lot of 2011 Dragon Gate proper because the year that unfolds in Japan is one of those historically great 2005, 2011, 2015, I think are the landmark years of Dragon Gate. Although 2019 is, is certainly close. I think as we get a little more distance from that year, there's just there was a lot to like there. But 2011 is for sure one of the one of the anecdotes on that golden era list, and it all starts with that Osaka show and what Blood Warriors had to offer. And then from there, you know, we get another 
new member of Blood Warriors on January 16th as Brody Lee, who was an original Warriors member who was not in the Osaka show, but came a few days later. He and Gamma teamed together on January 16th, beating Masaki Mochizuki and Super Shisa. But the important note here, Brody Lee pinned Masaki Mochizuki which was a big, big deal, given that Mochizuki to this day does not take a lot of falls. Yeah, no, this was remarkable. And now we could say that when they did the shifting that happened in the tail end of 2010 in Dragon Gate USA, everything comes together. But at the time, did not make much sense. It did not seem like Gabe was given a heads up of, hey, we need you to put Brody Lee into Warriors. Now it makes all sense because it is worth noting that Blood Warriors is a heel unit. It is... All of them are heelish. Dragon Kid, for his time that he remains in uh, in the Blood Warriors, will be heel for one of the only times in his career. But Brody Lee coming in, and other than like the three shows he did in December, getting a pinfall on Masaki Mochizuki, which at that time, Pac wasn't getting those pinfalls. Ricochet sure wasn't. And anyone else there. But having a, a tall guy, especially in comparison to the rest of the roster, just wiping out Masaki Mochizuki and getting a pinfall was something that was a relatively... Big note. It was something that was covered pretty uh, pretty heavily in the news. They talked about it in the Observer where they made like a big note of how uh, Brody Lee came in and then pinned Masaki Mochizuki. And that's going to be a big, he's going to be pushed as a monster who never loses. So for the first few days of the units existed, they did not, that the unit existed, they did not have a name. They were just kind of just the super unit. And then on January 18th in Cork and Hall, after Shima, Doi, and Gamma defeated Yamato, Kagatora, and Cyber Kong. Uh, this comes from iHeartDG. Shima celebrated with a big semifinal win and said it was time to announce their name. Apparently, no one bothered to think of one beforehand, so he went to Doi for his thoughts. Doi came up with two suggestions the super high tensioners or ultra machine guns. Shima wasn't pleased with either of those and the brainstorming continued. He asked uh, Doi of the name of the unit that he first raged in the answer blood generation. Shima combined it with warriors and the new unit had their official name January 18th, 2011 blood warriors is officially born also on that Cork and Hall show, as we continue to break it down, I'll just go from the full card here. Saito Horiguchi and Nozawa out of the question defeat Super Shisa, Kotoka, and Super Senlong. And Super Shenlong. Naoki Tanizaki defeats Kness. Susumu Yokosuka and BB Hulk, a rare tag team there. They defeat Dragon Kid and Ricochet. Yasushi Kanda and Brody Lee defeat... Brody Lee defeat Masaki Mochizuki and Kenichiro Arai with Lee pinning Arai this time. As I mentioned, she, Do- Shima, Doi, and Gamma defeat Yamato, Kagatora, and Kong. And the main event over the Dreamgate title match, Masato Yoshino defeats Don Fuji. This was a really fun show because I remember that the Yokosuka Hulk tag was a lot of fun. I mean, Tanizaki versus Kaness was fine. Sadly, it wasn't as good as it could have been. And then, you know... Big match Don Fuji is something to watch because Don Fuji is someone that we see him being jovial. He likes to sing. He likes to watch his trains. But Don Fuji in a main event match is something else. I remember that being something that was like, oh, yeah. Especially like the the Riverina Especial is a move that I don't think Masato Yoshino has done at all in the last five years. It was just kind of exciting to like went there. This was a this is a pack cork and house. They say 2100. We know it's 1850 in real life. And it just is one of those like landmark Corkin shows that's worth watching as a Dragon Gate fan. If you have not seen Yoshino versus Fuji, it is out there 
It is certainly out there, but it is a landmark Dreamgate defense. Now there are probably 10 to 15, maybe even 20 Dreamgate matches that you can say, okay, objectively, that was a better wrestling match than Yoshino versus Fuji. But Fuji versus Yoshino, this match, for whatever reason, is so fondly remembered. It is just, it is a match that screams Dragon Gate. There is a, a moment in the match where Fuji rolls up Yoshino with the Gato Clutch. One, two, 2.9, Yoshino kicks out. But Fuji's second, Masaki Mochizuki, the stoic, the grumpy, the angry Masaki Mochizuki, he thinks it is a three count, and he jumps in the ring to celebrate with Fuji. And they have to explain that that Fuji did not win the match, that he has to keep on fighting. And then a few minutes later, Yoshino puts him away. It is a marvelous marvelous Dreamgate match, one that I rewatched because I, I just so happen to have the time this weekend, and it holds up as well as you hoped it would. I highly recommend checking it out uh, Checking it out if you have not seen it. Yeah, it, it's something where Don Fuji has been such a figure that, I mean, he's been around since the beginning, but we've seen him, like, change, especially over the time. I mean, a lot of people don't remember, and it's one of those things. Don Fuji is a former Dreamgate champion. Don Fuji is a, has a big match mode, and just the way that it was and the way that Corkin buys into things was something special. And, I mean, like, the Riverina Special was just, like, his version of a flash pin at that time for Masato Yoshino, so the idea that he got out of this match by the skin of his teeth, and especially in his first reign against a uh, a first-generation person, was a very remarkable moment. So yeah, this is an incredible show, and then after that match, Mochizuki came out for the challenge. Yoshino accepted, saying that Mochizuki deserves a challenge. Blood Warriors came back out, and they say, and then Yoshino said, I've already defeated Doi, and I've already defeated other people, so Shima said, oh yeah, that's fine, I'm nominating Gamma. And Mochizuki was pissed off and then challenged Gamma to a number one contendership match. Gamma accepted but said he did not feel like actually wrestling the match. Gamma, another person... What else is new? Yeah, Gamma. Another person that, if you're somewhat new to Dragon Gate, you're not used to how much of just like an asshole Gamma used to be. Gamma was a brutal person when he came into the promotion. And Gamma said that he did not feel like wrestling, so Brody Lee will be wrestling for him. Mochizuki was nonplussed by the ordeal and said the match was next month, Mochizuki versus Lee. And there's one last thing, because something that, as we're going to talk about 2011 and 2012, things become very fluid and fast and furious, especially with what people's alignment happens. And the first person whose alignment comes into doubt is kind of a surprising one. It was Shima being so hung up on Pac. And Case, how, how much do you remember of like the, the pack contra pack stuff? What's weird is I, I didn't remember it at all until I was I, until I was reading these notes. I had no memory or recollection of this occurring. It, it's just something that like this will happen a lot and people's alignment, especially as we're going to we're about four months away. We actually are exactly four months away in this timeline from the formation of Junction 3. So there's going to be a lot of going back and forth. And when it's Junction 3, then it's, oh, who's turning heel, who's turning face. But at this time, there was going to be a pack contra pack match. And the Blood Warrior side was Doi, Shima, and Kid. Yoshino shot that down, but it said that since Gamma was doing the dirty work, or Gamma was having Bray Lee doing the dirty work, then Gamma has to be in on this. So then Gamma uh, was going to be replaced on that side. And I do not have in my notes who the World 1 side is, but I imagine that it was Yoshino, Hulk, and either Pac or Susumi Yokosuka. 
I don't remember yes. exactly. Uh, on the February cork, and let me see, it was Hulk, Yoshino, and Yokosuka. You nailed it. Boom. There we go. And then we have like two last little notes in Japan, which is also, I like doing these things like we touched on Wrestle Kingdom 5, but now we're going to touch on some of the youngsters here because it's worth talking about because there were two more shows in this month. There was a Kobe Sambo Hall show, which featured the future T-Hawk, Takuya Tomamako Mai. Did better that time. I've been trying yeah, to get it. Was okay. it was okay. It was okay. There. You nailed it before the show. Yeah. That's like yeah. off mic. Let me assure you folks, Mike Spears killed the pronunciation. Yeah. Takuya Toma Makomai. There we go. That's better. I'm going to go with that one there. Defeating Super Shenlong for T-Hawk, the future T-Hawk's first ever win in Dragon Gate solo pinfall. And then we had a Dragon Gate Sanctuary show, which Sanctuary was what the current equivalent of, of Nex is. This was the ones that took place in the old Prime Zone video, a studio where... That was the former owner of Dragon Gate, President Okamura's building. That's where everything was based in. But they would do these shows, and they would have exhibition matches. And before the show this week, which is talking off mic, a very much a Mike Spears show. I would love to see the Sanctuary 71 show. But two new rookies, Yosuke Watanabe, who is better known now as Yosuke Samaria, and Ada Kobayashi, better known as Ada, made their debuts today. So three big central members of the new generation are now in Dragon Gate. Three people that will appear in Dragon Gate USA at some point. And, and for Ata uh, and T-Hawk, not too far away. Like, no, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but that were that was all the goings on in Japan. We now have Blood Warriors. We don't have a Blood Warriors logo yet, sadly, and it's one of my favorite logos in Dragon Gate history. But Case, we are now in the Blood Warriors era. We're now in the Blood Warriors area, era rather. And Mike, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to open the United Gate in New York City. Do you want to get into this show? Yeah, let's get into the show proper. This was, of course, the first ever show they had at BB King's Bar and Grill. Uh, what were your thoughts overall about BB King's before we get into the show? I love the venue. Everyone I know that's talked about the venue said they loved being able to work there, that it was a fun space, the crowd on the stage being right on top of you, the open booths on the other side of the ring, which I just can't imagine uh, eating a nice meal and also watching a Gabe Sapolsky production. That seems <laughs> counterproductive. Um, the the one thing I will say aesthetically, and Mike, I, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but we have a new ring announcer for these shows. Larry Legend opens up the show. And I know... I know this is a small complaint and it shouldn't matter, but we are now currently in the era of indie wrestling where very few ring announcers are wearing suits. Uh, there's a lot of banter going on. It seems like the job of the ring announcer has become very <laughs> casualized and is just something that I, I think deserves a little bit more reverence in a sense. And while Larry legend looked very nice and certainly has a booming voice, he was reading off of his iPhone. I knew you were going to bring that up. That really bothered me. I, I knew you were going to bring that up because he was like, he, and he still is. He does still do ring announcing. He, he ring announces from his iPhone, which yeah, it makes sense, but it's always something that you're so used to seeing the ring announcer with like a pad of paper or note cards. Yeah. Get the card. Like I, that it's just one of those things. And I think Larry is a great ring announcer. 
it, yeah, Larry's Larry's very good, but it's a professional thing of just like, especially on a Dragon Gate USA show. Like, it's one thing if it's CZW where you know I, he has a phone at CZW, that's a win. But at Dragon Gate USA, it's a bit of a bigger deal. You know, use the card, have some reverence for the position. Again, a small thing, but it was the first thing I saw. And it really bugged me for some reason. And I've also humiliated that you knew that I, that, that would bug me. That I mean, is going to make me question a lot of life decisions. It, it's one of those things that I think is kind of interesting. And there, it, it's something that, like, with BB Kings, I kind of identify BB Kings with Larry Legend being a ring announcer. I thought this venue was really cool. Apparently, the big issue and why they stopped doing it was apparently there was like an agreement on so much like they would have to spend at the bar and in the restaurant to make the deal work for the venue and it never worked out i remember gabe sapolsky and johnny gargano talking pretty positively about bb kings was one of those things that just did not really work out uh something that i wanted to touch on that sadly ever got to but and we should get into before the the show itself uh from the 130 observer which was published beforehand both of these shows, this show we're talking about this week, uh, United New York City and the Philadelphia one at the 2300 Arena, uh, are both on iPay Review. And they said this is going to be a move for them. And they say that this might be something that they're going forward. If this case, Sapolsky thought that iPay Review was the future of his, of his niche product. Makes a lot of sense for what he was saying. And it does seem like that it's one of those things that Dragon Gate didn't do nearly as well on their first show without TV. But the idea of doing two straight nights the same weekend as a Royal Rumble on iPay Per View with the show's that weren't really announced till four days was not very encouraging. So something to kind of keep in mind here with that. And so. these are on GoFight Live, correct? Because I correct. believe the yes. WWM platform is introduced at the next triple shot. I, I believe you're right, yes. Yes, and all right. So th these are still GoFight Live, which is the important part. Yeah, and something also that is interesting, Gabe Sapolsky said he had a conversation with Paul Heyman, had rev revelation, and this is the beginning of a new philosophy of the company at the end of the weekend he was very happy with. So... Just two interesting notes before we get into this. But yeah, Larry Lynchon introduces everyone, brings out Rebby Sky with the United Gate belts. I know you're not a belt guy, but this is probably my least favorite belts that has been around a Dragon Gate affiliated company. Oh, I kind of I kind of like them. I don't know if I would say I'm not a belt guy. I I I, I like a good title belt. Uh, I I don't mind the United Gate belts. So I th I think they're simple, but I think they're effective. It, it's something where like. And it might be an issue I have with the current V4 Dreamgate titles. Like, there's an dormant that I feel like is ridiculous. On the Dreamgate, they have the crown on it. And on this one, they had, like, the giant stars. It just was something that, like, this was also a time where they were ended up replacing a lot of the uh, Dragon Gate proper titles. They have new United, they have United, or even mess up my head, new Twin Gate titles. So it was interesting. And then Rebe Sky have the have the tro have the title belts and then she would go to the back as we would have our first match of the weekend accompanied by John Moxley to be naked for I think the first time they actually used be naked in a Dragon Gate USA audience we had Akira Tozawa versus Sammy Callahan Mike I loved this match and reading other reviews of this show which includes friend of Voices of Wrestling Sean Cedor in his old review blog I was shocked at, I guess, just how high I went on this match. To me, it was, I guess, a loose equivalent of like a G1 sprint in the sense that it went 10 minutes. These guys beat the crap out of each other. Tozawa did a suicide dive into the barricade when Callahan <laughs> ducked out of the way. And in the end, it felt like, you know, Tozawa's been around since May of 2010. Callahan had worked a lot of bonus card matches 
and you know debuted on the last show we talked about on Freedom Fight in a squash match. But this is a little bit more of a fully fleshed out Sammy Callahan character. To me, this felt like Gabe was saying, these are two guys I care about. These are two guys you need to pay attention to. And it starts right here, right now in New York City. Yeah, I ended up really enjoying this as well. Uh, Akira Tozawa won this match in 12 minutes and 6 seconds with the deadlift German making its debut in Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, this this was like toned down Sammy Callahan histrionics, which had me a little bit more vested in it. And then really hard hitting. Like this, a, I, I know I'm apt to say like this reminded me of a King Gate match or a G1 match, but this one probably really did. And this was just like a fun venue. We had Akira Tozawa start doing his multiple topes to the outside, which is something that we become a central move of his, of his move set. We had some weird Akira Tozawa. I don't remember his exact spot, but he was doing like these kicks in the corner that he was just looking like a complete weirdo, and that's just like an Akira Tozawa thing to happen. But this was like a really fun Sammy Callahan match, which I'm loath to say. But it's <laughs> be sure to clip that one for the best of show, just so we have the proof that Mike Spears had really fun Sammy Callahan well, match. Well, that's my favorite Dragon Gate wrestler in it, so you know, like. It balances out somewhat. I went three and a quarter on this. It did feel like that this was 12 minutes and it could have been eight and it would have been perfect to me. But I thought this was a fun opener. I went four flat. Okay. I, th- I thought this, I, I, you're right in line with the reviews I read. Okay, so I sell was, me on this. I just thought it was like, oh, this is taking the strengths of Sammy Callahan, which is a dumbed down, aggressive, physical kind of match adding the Akira Tozawa raw charisma kind of unhinged element to it. And then, like I said, they just beat the crap out of each other. Like I was fully engaged and fully engrossed in everything they were doing. And I left this match just like, Oh my God, like this uh, again, the, the, I think the poor, the, the, the big takeaway from this match is that it felt important, even though it was the opening match and two guys that had essentially done nothing in the company, it was like, oh, wow, we need to pay attention to these guys. And so maybe there's a little bit of a bump there. But all in all, I just thought it was a super, super good match. I couldn't believe that this is what kicked off the show, that they were given as much time as they were, that they worked as well as they did. It's their first of two singles matches in the history of Gate USA. I don't know. I just I loved this match and I was surprised to see, you know, a three and a quarter, three stars. And that was everything that I was reading was in that range to me. I was, you know, about ready to jump off my couch by the end of it. It was a four star match to me. You, you see, if you carve three minutes out of this, make this a nine minute match. This probably would have been a four minute, a four star sprint. But this was a four star sprint that was in a match that was a little bit too long for what it should be. It did seem like Sammy Callahan for how characters that would be pushed from here on out. We're kind of out of, just so people know, we're kind of out of young lying characters out mode in DGUSA. This no, is... he's, he looks, acts, and feels like a completely different person than the guy that showed up on the Canada shows. And part of that is the Chris Hero match that we talked about. Part of that is the Kevin Steen match that we talked about in the last show. And part of that is just Akira Tozawa as a pro is constantly evolving. Yeah, and it's also worth noticing or, or noting we are probably at only, sadly, another like three months left on Akira Tozawa's excursion. His excursion will be up in May. So, at this time, like this is like, I guess maybe this was when he, Gabe got the note of, hey, Akira Tozawa is going to win now. And that's pretty much what we have throughout his extent in Dragon Gate USA and without the extent of the company. This is, a, this is the true Akira Tozawa, not the young lion one. But yeah, I still think that 
for Sammy Callahan, me giving him three and a quarter stars is a big accomplishment in my book. No, it's a big win. It's Trust me, around the clubhouse, <laughs> it's a big win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any other thoughts about this? I mean, you're the one who went four stars on it, so. No, God, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how you tap dance your way through this next segment. All right. Uh, John Moxley grabs a microphone after the match, says that Akira Tozawa is a winner, like everyone in Kamikaze USA. He runs down New York City. He runs down all the sports teams. Says they're all quitters and losers, just like Homicide, who's sitting at home and not watching this. This brings back out Rebby Sky. This time she is in a New York Giants jersey, and she gets right in his face. And and then Moxley grabs her by the hair and cuts a pretty misogynistic promo. I did not take notes on what he said to uh Rebby Sky this was a misogynistic promo in 2011 it's a misogynistic promo in 2020 and tells Akira Tozawa to attack her and hit her but Akira Tozawa refuses Akira Tozawa is not a misogynist like John Moxley <laughs> and then Jigsaw from the Bronx makes the save do you think I cover that <laughs> with, with, so, so with... there's a few things first of all not all men, Akira Tozawa, woke King Tozawa, <laughs> refusing uh, to assault a woman. It was a nice change after the week we've had in professional wrestling. It was a huge positive. Rabies Sky comes out in a bedazzled Eli Manning jersey. Oh, was Eli Manning? And- I don't follow the Giants. I don't know. Yeah, you're not missing much. Uh, a bedazzled <laughs> Eli Manning jersey. It says, quote, speaking on behalf of homicide. <laughs> and I just want to know what their interactions were like. I would like to hear the phone call between Rebby Sky and Homicide as to what in the hell they're discussing and how it relates to John Moxley. And then you're right from there, things go downhill and, and Moxley uh, has some actions that I don't, you know, I don't know how they were taken by the fan base at the time. Nine years later, they certainly don't hold up. And then we get Jigsaw versus Mox, which is a fun little TV style match, in my opinion. Oh, I like this match more than the opener. Uh, John Moxley won with a crossface chicken wing in six minutes and 31 seconds. I thought that Jigsaw coming in with like a huge house of fire was awesome to start off this match. And I thought that these two work great together. It's one of those things that Jigsaw's one of those people that I wish stuck around the company a whole lot more because I thought he was great in this, playing like the local baby face trying to defend the honor both of Rebby Sky, of Homicide, and of New York City at large. What a large task for Jigsaw to try to defend New York City at large against this madman and John Moxley. But yeah, I, I certainly didn't like it as much as the opener, but I thought for what it was, which was a clear sort of David versus Goliath uh, one guy positioned as a main eventer, one guy being phased out of the company and someone that was, you know, mid-card at best on his best day in the company. Jigsaw looked credible at the right moments. Moxley looked dangerous all of the time. My big qualm with this match is the fact that Yamato ran in, attacked Jigsaw, and that gave Moxley the opportunity to put him in the chicken wing and have Jigsaw tap out, which I found to be completely unnecessary. I do not think that John Moxley should have the help of anyone on his path to beating Jigsaw. Yeah, he doesn't need the help. It fits in with how Kamikaze USA was portrayed. Like, they were constantly, like, fucking up the finishes for everyone else. So, it made sense, but, like, for, like, a six-minute match, it did not need to happen. And until then, I thought this was just, like, these two guys had a great little TV match. Like, it really should have been that he had the House of Fire, then Moxley decisively put it away. Yeah, no, it's, uh, again, six minutes, it was, I I thought it was a a nice effort from both men. 
yeah, after that match, we have another promo for John Moxley, but this time it was to put over Yamato and to call New York a bunch of quitters, like how Jigsaw just quit the match, like how Homicide was staying at home as a quitter. I don't think he said anything misogynistic about Rebby Sky at this moment, but I would not have been surprised that I zoned that out, sadly. And then Hulk came out because the big thing on the show, if you haven't picked up on the first match and second match, Gibbs Pulsey decided, and it's something that he goes through phases of this, that he wanted everything to happen in front of the crowd in the ring. This could have been because of how poorly things went in Massachusetts when they try to do backstage promos, but the entire show happens in front of the crowd, this one, and all the matches flow into each other. We don't have a single person just like walking out celebrating. They had to get another thing in there, which made the show only two hours and 15 minutes, but it's just something to keep in mind because then... BB Hulk comes out, and then we have BB Hulk versus Akira Tozawa for the Freedom Gate. And in this match, Akira Tozawa loses the Freedom Gate. Yamato is the second open. BB Hulk loses the Freedom Gate, not Akira Tozawa. Yes. <laughs> in this match. <laughs> in your dreams, Akira Tozawa wins the Freedom Gate, but I mean, it was BB Hulk. I, I mean, in my dreams, you, you know the photo of Kenji Muto where he has all the belts around him? That, that, that's me and Akira Tozawa, even tag belts. <laughs> that, that, that's that's how it is, but no. I well, he's really... the 24-7 champion right now, Mike. Are you not satisfied? I didn't know he was 24-7 champion right now, Case. It, ha- it happened last night. I'm shocked you weren't watching. No, no, of course I wasn't watching. No, because we have brains. Yeah, no, no never, never would have watched that. Uh, is he still dressed up as, are they still doing the racist ninja gimmick? Yes. For fuck's sake. Okay. Needed that moment to recompose myself, but yes, Yamato <laughs> and, back. and Yamato is the second ever Open the Freedom Gate champion in 21 minutes and 40 seconds when he puts away BB Hulk with the Galleria. I'm of a couple minds about this match, so I, what are your thoughts first? Well, this is one of those matches where Gabe had ideas. And there is nothing more dangerous than a match (laughs) where Gabe has ideas. And this is, there was just too much going on for this to fully have the impact that it needed to happen. You're already doing a world title match as your third match on the show, which I understand given the tag team title tournament. And that's how the weekend was, was built around, but you're putting B.B. Hulk, who was champion for 426 days, you're putting him in the third match of the show against Yamato. You're going to have Hulk drop the title, which is a really big deal. And in this match, you have Julius Smokes running in, and he beats up John Moxley, which, logically, why would Smokes be in the building if Homicide's not there? And then Smokes, who I like, mind you, I really like him in Ring of Honor. Smokes does commentary for a few seconds, and they're just building this Homicide versus Moxley match that just doesn't need to be built to this extent. And then on top of that, you have a good match. I think they're, you know, you got to remember Hulk and Yamato was the first match in the history of the company. I think that match is much better than this one was, but you have a good match that ends when Yamato unfortunately hits the weakest Galleria in history and pins BB Hulk in a deflating win for the now second Open the Freedom Gate champion. Yeah, it's a match where it had good ideas to start. I thought that Yamato, especially in this era, was great at attacking Hulk's leg. 
and it looked really convincing, and I think Hulk sold it well. Then you have the Julius Smokes thing kind of happen, and he chases off Moxley, and then he grabs a microphone and talks, and it's just like, okay, what's going on here? And then the very flat finish of a very ugly uh, Firebird splash, and then a Galleria that might be one of the worst Galleria's in history. Would you say that's fair? It looks just terrible. Un- just unfortunate, just because he, he gently... Uh... Laid BB Hulk on the mat like there was some sort of miscommunication, although I can't imagine what it was. And at that point, you would just hope that you know Hulk kicks out and they they find some other move to do. But instead, that was the finish, and it was just really deflating. Yeah, yeah, it was just incredibly deflating. It was something that you would think that you know they did have the uh, the Dojima sleeper suplex happen earlier on, so you thought that maybe you could have that be something to play into that but i guess that's not in the cards here and it's just disappointing you know it's just especially for someone like yamato who's booked so well and has been such like probably the uh, dragon gate japan mvp of the promotion i think it's fair to say it's either him or shingo takagi and as you mentioned before we would not see shingo takagi again in dragon gate usa so for a while for a while he comes back like in 2013 yes but it's just something that like for like this match, especially for it to start like the second tile reign, it's deflating. Like I didn't even rate this match. Like when I watch it, just because I don't know how to rate a match that just, other than the fact that it's a disappointment and BB Hulk did not have very many great title defenses, that Shingo title defense remains his best title defense. So if I were to put a star rating on it, I'm a pencil out there. Three and a half. Yeah, I, I'm right with you. I gave it three and a half. I think that's fair. When you look at the BB Hulk title reign, which starts in November of 2009, where he defeats Shima, Gran Akuma, and Yamato, which that match already feels like it's a million years ago with Akuma being in that position. He goes on to defeat Sumi Yokosuka in Japan on the show where Masaki Mochizuki defeated Davey Richards in Japan. Talking about stuff that feels like it was a million years ago. Right. Uh, BB Hulk versus Dragon Kid in Chicago at Fearless. Hulk would defeat Naruki Doi at Open the Ultimate Gate in Phoenix. He would defeat Masato Yoshino at Uprising in Ontario. Masaki Mochizuki at Enter the Dragon in Philadelphia at the anniversary show. And then, as you mentioned, Shingo at Bushida Code of the Warrior in Fall River, Massachusetts. So big picture, first Open the Freedom Gate champion. What do you think the the history and the way B.B. Hulk's reign should be remembered. Was he an effective champion? Did he start the promotion off on the right foot? Ten years later, how do we feel about it? Well, ultimately, I think he put the promotion on the right foot. I think that's easy to say. I think that's a big check mark towards him. Because for a while, B.B. Hulk was the most over person in this promotion. Like Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, the first show, it is him and the Young Bucks, who I think are the two most over guys on the show. Yeah, so, and it does hurt all the stuff that happened in Japan. I think hampered his reign, him dropping the dancers, which never worked in the States, but definitely was something that the crowd liked, you know? And then him losing the hair, and just, it was something where, like, his positioning in the card, he was not felt like the first champion. Like, compare contrast this with Loki as the first Ring of Honor champion. Like, Loki felt like the guy to start Ring of Honor, right? He Like, BB Hulk never had that aura, but he was a good champion. It's just one of those things that... Did it feel like the guy to first solidify the title? You know, the matches weren't as great as as Yamato or Shingo Takagi's. His response was solid to begin with, but then it would go away to, like, Naruki Doi and Shima. 
and you'd have other people on the star on like the ascent like Akira Tozawa. It's just it's a difficult one. I think don't think he's a failure, but I wouldn't give him like a full mark success if that makes sense. I think for what he was put out there to do, which he was often I think an afterthought to whatever Kamikaze USA was doing, which yes, you know, I think his big weekend could have been this where he, you know, would have buzzsawed through Yamato Moxley and Tozawa in one weekend. He will still have those singles matches with Moxley and Tozawa, but it'll be non-title. But I think the focus of the promotion was built around Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino and then Shingo versus Dragon Kid, and then the Warriors stuff with Shima and Ricochet. And the only time where it feels like BB Hulk is in the biggest match on the show, even if he's main eventing other shows, is BB Hulk versus Shingo. So although he was the first champion, he really only needed to be a second-tier caliber star and caliber wrestler, and I think he accomplished that. I look back on BB Hulk's reign as one that was a success, one that I think he was the the right first champion and had the right reign given what he had to do. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it, you know. Like, I don't blame him for this. And he did do his job, for lack of better words, as first champion in a solid way. It's just one of those things that it became kind of depressing at the end of this that the Akira, that they almost called him Akira Tozawa again, uh, that the BB Hulk that we had at the end of the the promotion was not the BB Hulk that we had at the start. And that's the, that's the only sad thing, and I don't think that's his fault. No, I, I would completely agree with that. So, do you have any other thoughts on the first title change? And here's, like, the sad thing. Like, if we were going to do, like, and I feel like that would be something fun to do at the end, Case, where we all decide, like, what the top matches in Dragon Gate USA history are, this does not make my list. And you feel like that for a match that is like this, this should make the list, but it doesn't. No, I think from Hulk's reign, and maybe this feeds into your point a little bit, although I'm okay with it, that really the only match from from Hulk's reign that might make a top 10 would likely make a top 15, I think for sure, unless there's a bunch of hidden gems that I'm forgetting about. Hulk versus Shingo would make that list, but there's nothing else in his reign that would, and it's a shame because this match... Uh, was certainly, I think, built up to be something bigger. And it it was good, but it just didn't hit expectations. And through no fault of Hulk and Yamato, there was just way too much going on that I think ultimately detracted from the match. Okay, yeah, I, I think that that's fair. Like, take out the Julius Smoke stuff, take out the, the stuff going on here, have it more set up, like, put this in, like, as a standalone match, not where everything is flowing into each other. I don't think that this is a bad match. Do we know if they had a curfew for this venue? Because I know later on in 2011, they run a show just like this where everything is back to back. And it was because they were the first of two shows in a venue. And then there was also another wrestling show happening in that town that night. So they had to get that show over with as quick as possible. But do we know, was there a New York City uh, curfew in effect for these shows? Or is it just a decision that Gabe made on his own? I do not know, but I will ask and have an answer for us. Because this is something yes, I do ask wonder. and answer by next week. Yeah, because yeah. that was that was my first thought. Because a lot of the, I guess, transitional angles that were happening on this show felt very forced. Whereas when they do it 
later on in the year, there's one specific show that I'm thinking of where I, I thought it was very natural and they did a very good job of it. Here, it just seemed like they were rushing because they had to. You know, it doesn't surprise me, especially because like most shows were about two and a half hours, and this one was 2.15. So it is noticeable. So Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have an answer for that by next week. We'll have an answer for that for next week. But talking about flowing into things, then we had Jimmy Jacobs come out, say, and his, pro, his line, one of the few lines I wrote down verbatim because it just cracked me up, Someone say something about Jimmy Jacobs. <laughs> I don't think anyone was saying anything about you, bud. But that's that's a way to make an entrance, though, Case. Oh, Jimmy Jacobs uh, often peaks with the entrance. Yeah, that he does. And then he cuts a promo about winning the Freedom Gate title. And then says, I'm going up against Brody Lee. And he calls out Brody Lee with the entire uh, Blood Warriors whole contingent that were out there. And this is the thing, one of the things going forward, folks, at least through the end of this feud. Everyone was kind of out for all these matches. So you had Brody Lee with Blood Wars, but you also had Naruki Doi and Ricochet. You also had Shima and Dragon Kid out as well. So like you had like all, like it was an idea of them that they all moved as a pack and it's something that became a big kind of thing in Dragon Gate proper. So just wanted to to lay that out there so everyone knows what's going on here. But then then we had Naruki, uh, not Naruki Doi, my names are completely messed up this week. Uh, then we had Brody Lee defeating Jimmy Jacobs in 6 minutes and 16 seconds with the sit-out lighter, lighter bomb. So there's one moment in this match, and I thought it was an okay match. It, it was what it needed to be. There's one moment in this match where Brody Lee is on the outside with Jimmy Jacobs, and he lifts Jacobs up in a powerbomb position and then powers him, power bombs him up onto the stage but the way it's shot and the way the building is lit it kind of looks like Brody Lee just power bombs Jimmy Jacobs into a black hole in the endless abyss because Jacobs fades away from where he's visible on camera and I'm assuming that the commentators just didn't have that angle on it yeah because I thought they really undersold that move that to me, I was like, oh my God, that looked brutal. And then I thought Jimmy Jacobs kind of undersold it as well, because a minute later he's back in the ring and he's the one beating down Brody Lee. And it's a shame because just the way that move, that single move was shot, I thought looked so good. And then it ended up being just a minor moment in what was it already a short match. Yeah. It's one of the things that BB King's, this is like the rare thing where I'm not going to complain about Gabe's production. You're at a nightclub slash bar and grill, which is a wild thing to say, but hey, it's New York City. And you're going to have different kind of lighting there, but the lighting here where almost all the lights were towards the ring and not really anywhere else kind of worked. And it worked in the fact there, and we kind of missed out on that. Yeah, no, the building I thought looked great. Yeah, we're big BB Kings Blues Bar and Grill fans over here. Sadly departed. I did look this up, Case. It did close in 2018. Oh, so we can't. God, there, so, <laughs> there, there goes our path to greatness, walking in the footsteps of Dragon USA. We start at BB King's Bar and Grill. We end up at the auditorium at Tulane University, and we walk the same steps that a Chuck Taylor and a Jimmy Jacobs and a Gabe Sapolsky walked. We are going to have to cancel that trip now. Yeah, I mean, I will have to say they did have a hell of a lineup. For their last week of shows, they had Rick Ross, they had Slick Rick, and Dougie Fresh. They had George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, and the last show was with Buddy Guy. So, yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, that I mean, is not bad. They close out 
on a way, but we can't do that. We can't go on our long awaited road trip where we start off at whatever garage they were running in L and in suburban Los Angeles and end up at BB Kings before stopping off at the weird venue they ran in Boston. But yeah, no, is it a, is it a, uh, is it a Bill Simmons segment to pit these triple shots against each other where we can rank the DG USA United triple shots against the final weekend of BB Kings bar and grill triple shot with, uh, Rick Ross and BBK and, and whoever else, can we rank those and then cash in and make Spotify money on that? Because that seems like something he would do. I mean, he would. Oh, <laughs> if Bill Simmons is listening to this podcast, please slide into our D- DMs at Open Voice Gate. Talk oh, God, please. I know you've been in the news for some controversy lately, but I will work for you. I mean, I'll take the money. I never say anything about working for him. Uh, but this is like a fun little six-minute match. Like, I went three flat on it. This was a gentleman's three six-minute TV match. I, exact same boat as you, and I am now shaking with anticipation for what comes next. Yes, because Blood Warriors celebrate in the ring. The ooh is a big thing for Blood Warriors. They could they pick it up. One, one thing we did not mention in the timeline— the big party moment from the big reveal was they all did a huge human pyramid with Shima on top going ooh in probably the most uh, egotistical and megalomaniacal moment in Shima's career of many. Just being <laughs> of many, yes. But yeah, so like they did do ooh and they brought out Ronan with Rich Swan beatboxing. It's time for Ronan baby. He tries to get he tries to get Ronan baby over. It's not over yet, but it will get over. Like for, for what it was, the, the crowd did love Rich Swan beatboxing. It's something that would also work for him in Japan as well. Chuck Taylor. Oh, hold on hold on one second. So, or I guess, are you going to continue breaking out the entrance? Because I have a ton of thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm still talking. We're not getting to the match yet. Uh, All right, go ahead. And then Chuck Taylor grabs the microphone and says that they will prove that they belong in Japan. And that after the show that they will belong in Japan. After, he, after Rich Swan is done beatboxing. Case, take it away. So the Ronin rapping entrance would evolve from here because it was on record that Rich Swan forgot all of the words as soon as he came out of the curtain. As soon as he came down the aisle, everything went blank and he was kind of able to salvage it, kind of wasn't though. But Mike, I am not being facetious when I ask you this question. Is this entrance, the Ronin rapping entrance, which turns maybe not directly on this night, but I think from every show here on out turns Ronan into a babyface unit, which was not, which was not the intended plan. Is this one of, say, the five most important single moments in the history of Drangit USA, this rapping Ronan entrance? Man, okay. Top five moments in DG USA. I think, I mean, big picture, and I know there's stuff we're going to be forgetting, but I think, like, Gargano versus Shingo and the finish of that match, I think that is a crucial moment in this company's history. I think that's the top moment in the company's history. Uh, After that, the debut show, uh, I think Danielson versus Shingo. Yeah. Maybe, like, I was originally thinking no, but now I'm thinking about other stuff that happened in the promotion. And particularly, I guess... Yeah, this I, might it's be. Not, it's, it's not cheating to say a match or a show, because I, I do think if you're going to make that list, open the historic gate just as a whole right. has to be included. But of a moment, 
Mike, this changes the complexion of the promotion because it pivots Ronan into something that they were not originally intended to be. And I think as a result, it makes all three of them much bigger stars. And in the particular case of Rich Swan, it gives him staying power in Japan that ultimately Chuck Taylor especially never got and Johnny Gargano never got because we're about to approach the Ronan Japan tour, which would later just become Rich Swan's extended stay in Japan. And, you know, of course he had the talent to hang over there, but the the beatboxing entrance gave him something new, gave him something that the Dragon Gate roster did not have. Right. I, I weirdly think this is like a defining moment in the history of the company because it changed everything, especially on the American side of things. And it probably changed Rich Swan's career. Undoubtedly. Yes, I yeah. completely agree. Yeah, okay, I think you sold me on it. but And then after that, we have a really good match. We had what I... Th- it was not my match tonight, but it was close to it. As I think this is the first time that the Die Fly team teamed. I think this is the first time for Naruki Doi and Ricochet to team against each other. But this was the first match in the round-robin tournament where by the end of this weekend, we would have the first ever Open the United Gate Champions as the Blood Warriors team Die Fly of Naruki Doi and Ricochet face off against the... This might be one of the first ta- team tagging for these guys as well, as it was the ruin team of Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano. Chuck Taylor got the surprising win on the Open, the one-third of the Open, the Triangle Gate Champions, and Ricochet in 16 minutes and 11 seconds. In case, I adored this match. Yeah, this is, I think, a testament to... Uh just the baseline greatness that often is the Dragon Gate style tag team tag team match. I mean, this, if you want to call this the house style of tag team wrestling for me, it just delivers every single time. And I believe this is the first time that Doi and Ricochet teamed as a two on two straight tag team. Yeah. And their chemistry off the charts. Oh yeah. First match. I mean, they just got it. And then you've got Taylor and Gargano who, I'm sure they would have teamed in Chikara by this point. Not but yet. But even not nah, let's as I quickly scroll through cage match, they would have had six man tags at the very end of 2010. But in terms of a straight two on two tag, this is their first one. So you're you're right in that sense. But they were a little familiar with each other. I think very similar to Doyen Ricochet actually, because they would have had a little bit of familiarity on Blood Warriors right. already. So you're looking at two new teams who have a tremendous amount of chemistry and there's just something about this. Like there's, I think some people might look at this as a flaw and they say, well, they did all of these big moves and none of them really stuck at Although to me, Johnny Gargano doing the doomsday device off the stage onto everybody is kind of the big move in the match for me, but they do all of these big moves and yeah, like there's not one moment I can really point to and go like, wow, that was super impressive. But by the end of the match, you have a collection of big spots that felt like they all mattered. It felt like at the end, Ronan more or less survived. I really did not think they were going to win this match. This is a four-star match. This is a notebook, Dragon Gate USA, put it on the spreadsheet. I loved this. Oh, I went four and a quarter. I Okay, good for you. I adored this match. Uh, I'm right now looking at the uh, Johnny Gargano uh, cage match. This might have been the match that the two of them, like I know that they were already teaming together in a fist, might be the match that kind of launched them into being one of the more successful tag teams 
inch car history of Taylor Gargano. And it's just something that it's just like remarkable. Like you mentioned about the house style like this. I mean, you come into this match already between when Ricochet now is virtually full-time in Dragon Gate. Between the last show that we had in Dragon Gate USA, which I believe was the tail end of October. Yeah, it was October 30th. Almost about three months later, completely transformed his body at this point. Like, putting on muscle. Like, he's not to the extent there, but you already can tell, like, and uh, Larry and, and Lenny Leonard made a point of, he's already got himself, like, into incredible shape. He's already starting to put on the muscle here. But the start of this match for me, case, take a guess which one of these four men I'm going about to go on about a two-minute tangent about how great they are. Man, I'm just not sure what direction this could go. I'm going to say Chuck Taylor. Naruki Toy is the best tag Naruki team wrestler Doi. of the last 15 years, and this is proof of it because Naruki Toy and a fresh tag team against people who he has not faced that often was the ring general here case. He was directing traffic. He was putting together stuff. We had a two we had a two part type of so for the for this, and it's just like being like, okay, this is what Ricochet does great. This is how I compliment it, and it's just showing like the overall tag team brilliance of someone that smart people have said that Naruki Doi is one of the best all-time tag team wrestlers. And this is like another thing I feel like you could put up on the mantle for Naruki Doi. He was every bit of the tag team general he he was. And it had a tremendous finishing stretch where you have the surprising finish that going into this match, you would think that, oh, it's going to be Naruki Doi and Ricochet winning. They, you have the former Dreamgate champion, and then you have one-thirds of the current Triangle Gate champions. And... Gargano and Chuck Taylor are chopped liver at this point, but they had the bold thing of Chuck Taylor getting the pin onto Ricochet, who's the best person at ever taking the awful waffle. And all of this, I think, that hedges on the brilliance and the mastery of the tag team match that Naruki Doi puts forth. Four stars, you can put it on the board. I completely agree with everything you just said, Mike. All right. So after this match, we had a promo, which was... Ronan's still figuring things out. We we have the rap, which becomes a big thing about this. But we have... I forgot who wrote this down, but I've noticed I wrote down the really cringe moments of promos because there's a lot of mic work tonight to various levels here. Uh, they say, how many people in New York are feeling a little Ronan, baby? Which... <laughs> All-time cringe line from Johnny Gargano. I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> I don't want to know the answer to that question, to be honest. And then we have uh, them saying that they want to go to Japan. There's a little bit just like a back and forth. And then that brings out Rich Swan versus Austin Aries. Do you have any other I, I should note. I should note real quick. Um, they mentioned they wanted to go to Japan, I think, two or three times before the match began. And then another two to three times after the match. And I got it. I understand at this point, Ronan thinks they belong in Japan. Message received loud and clear. I understand. I am dreading the fact that I know, I know it is coming on these next two shows as well, where they're going to say a hundred times that Ronan belongs in Japan. It was hammered home on this show. I understand and I agree, but my God, did they say it a lot? Hey, uh, Case, do you think Ronan wants to go to Japan? Look, I don't know. You got to ask Johnny Gargano, Chuck Taylor, and Rich Swan. I don't know if they're going to be vocal about such a thing, but my gut tells me they think they belong in Japan. Good point. So after this, we have Rich Swan versus Austin Aries. Austin Aries wins this match in about 17 minutes with a top rope brain buster 
into the last chancery. And I thought this was just the worst match on the show. I don't think Ares ever really worked in Dragon Gate USA, and that's me saying this even before the allegations came out. I just don't think he's a good fit here. Uh, it, it is certainly, I think, the least effective match on the show. There were a lot of clunky moments. There were some selling choices that confused me. Ultimately, it was fine. And given the nature of the events that occurred today, I'm ready to move on. Yeah. After that, we had another ring promo because we saw Ronan out there. But now this time we had Shima and Doi come out. And Chuck Taylor had the microphone. Chuck Taylor does a bad ricochet joke here. And then they say he wants to go to Japan. And then Shima calls Chuck Taylor stupid. And that brings out World 1 for a main event. As CK1 will go against the team of Masato Yoshino and Pac. And our last match of the night for the tournament round robin. World 1 would win this match when Pac hits a bridging German onto... Uh, Dragon Kid in 20 minutes and 21 seconds. And another, these two tag matches are must-see tag matches. I went four and a quarter for this match as well. Mike, do you know before this match, the last time that Pac worked in the United States of America? Well, it would have... He did not work in America during the uh, North... The uh, the Canada triple shot, because Canada's not part of... America, I remember that from... Second the United period. States, they are a part of North America. North America, yeah, not part of the United States. Was this the uh, PWG? It is a four-show stretch that includes uh, PWG, where he teamed with the Young Bucks against El Generico, Kevin Seed, and Susumu, a singles match against Chris Hero, and then later on that week, the Dragon Gate in LA show against Shingo Takagi, and then the Dragon Gate in Hawaii show, where he teamed with Shingo and Dragon Kid against Masada Yoshino, Naruki Doi, and BB Hulk. So it has been a very, very long time since Pac has been in the United States at all. It was 2007, which we talked about on the Open the Northern Gate show. 2007 was the last time that Pac wrestled in the Northeast, and that was when he wrestled Brian Danielson and Davey Richards on Ring of Honor shows to very, very poor reviews. But Pac comes back into New York City like a new man. I cannot believe how good Pac is in this match, and it is something that I've talked about a little bit on the pro wrestling only forums when I rarely post there, but when I do, uh, I've had some discussions about this. It's something I've thought about just a lot recently is the historical value of Pac and the mythical that I reference on the show all the time, the mythical list of the 100 greatest wrestlers ever. And, you know, my list would skew very Dragon Gate heavy, but last time I created a list, I had no Ricochet and I had no Pac on it. And I am, starting to think, especially in the case of Pac, that that is an incredible injustice because I felt like this was his match and that everything he did looked great, looked just tough. And that's the thing about Pac is he's known for being this great flyer, but his offense always looks so crisp. He delivers it with such aggression and such precision. There's never a dull moment when Pac is in the ring. I thought this was an excellent match from him. It's also, this whole weekend is a rare uh, signing of a Dragon Kid heel appearance, which I think is worth noting. But I went four and a half on this. I loved it. Yeah, no, this was just an exceptional match. There was a huge near fall with like, 
I forget what they call this, and I think they have a name for this. It's when uh, it, it's when kid goes for the Bible, and then you have uh, Shima flip over and do a prawn hold into it. Like that had a huge name. Yeah, I, I don't know what that's called, but yeah, that looks great. There's, I'll tell you, there's a move that Shima did in this match that just it made me miss Shima, maybe not particularly in Dragon Gate, but just, you know, Shima hasn't wrestled since the final Wrestle 1 show, and before that, it's not like he was doing too many dates then. But when somebody tries to sunset flip Shima, and then he rolls through and hits the double stomp on their chest... Oh, it's brutal. There, There is just not a better-looking move than that. Like, that is in a weird way, the mark of a professional, because every time he does that, I just think it looks so good. And that's just one of those things. I guess I'm not advocating for people just blatantly stealing moves, but on the independent landscape, I watch what a lot of these guys are doing. And you know, the, the rare instance that I'm talking to a wrestler and I'm trying to figure out what they're watching. And it's certainly not Shima tapes and it's certainly not old trying get USA shows. But how, if you're a wrestler, how are you not taking that move? Like, it just looks so good every time. Unfortunately, if you're an indie wrestler, you probably can't steal the move that Pac is doing because he gets a springboard 450 and then a bridging German suplex for the win. Like I said, it's four and a half stars for me. An outstanding way to close out what I thought overall. You have, you know, a low point with Aries and Swan and then Jacobs uh, versus Brody Lee, which was just all right. And Mox versus Jigsaw, which was fun and didn't overstay its welcome. I thought this was an excellent show, Mike. Now, granted, I loved the opener. Um, and I, then I gave both of the tag matches four stars or more. So I'm looking at a, a match with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven matches on it. I gave three of them four stars. That's a win for me. Yeah. And I think it's definitely a return to form. It was a after the the direness of Rawway and the fun but weirdness of Boston. This felt like a return to form of the shows they were putting on before that weekend, definitely for sure. Uh, it, it's something where I, I look at mine, and the only match that had below three stars was Swan versus Aries. And if you have a show, especially a show that's only two hours and fifteen minutes, that is all this, I'm going to have a great time. And that it's just something that with like these guys that like Shima, I feel like is at his best when he's the heel. And we're, we're getting to a point where this is like, other than like the brief zombie veterans thing, this is Shima's last big run as a heel. And he's such like a dickhead in this match. He does a moment where he does like this gross slingshot into a fan's chair. And then Bryce Remsburg is just being like, why do you have that chair out there? That's not right. And he doesn't care because it's Shima. And it's just a tremendous match. You have really Pac returning to the States, having an incredible performance. His bridging German he does looks brutal. It's one of those things that I've been sad that, like, with his style, he's gone back to it in AEW, but Pac is tremendous at doing these, like, suplexes, and he's one of those guys that he's sneakily a power guy for a guy who's not a power guy, and I really he's, love that's, it. The, that's exactly it, Mike. He's a power junior, and yeah. he, he doesn't really get the credit for it for whatever reason. I honestly think part of the reason that doesn't come into play is that I think he was kept away from Shingo for a lot of his Drangate career. Now, they have the match in L.A. that I just referenced. They have one singles match in Drangate UK. They spend all of 2011, or most of 2011, in the same unit. But I really can't think of a lot of... 
I would say Pac versus Shingo interactions. No. And then by the time Pac comes back, you know, in 2018, he comes back and wrestles one of Shingo's last matches in the company. So we never really got the fully formed, fully respected veteran Pac against Shingo. But I, uh, my point there is I think had Pac been positioned as someone uh, because he is someone with a similar muscular build and a similar amount of power that Shingo has, I think we would maybe look at him differently, but instead he has one of the best, the best nicknames in wrestling history with a man that gravity forgot. He could do an imploding 450 and all of his other insane shit. So we remember that, but no, there was no one in wrestling quite like Pac. And I think I, I am so glad that up until the pandemic, that his AEW run was working out to be a success because I've said it before that I think while he was on WWE TV, he was the last guy that kept me at least changing the channel onto Raw for a long time. Because if if Pac was on the screen, it was almost guaranteed to be a good match. He was an excellent WWE TV worker. I don't really think he gets the credit for that. And then given just the companies he worked for and the fact that, you know, he worked PWG but uh, it was pre boom PWG and just doesn't, he doesn't get the credit for, I think being as just unbelievably good as he is. And maybe part of that is me underselling his career, but this was a match and the match we'll talk about next week with him too. is just like, my God, this guy is really one of a kind in the large lineage and landscape of professional wrestling. No one can do what this guy does. And it's something that's so special, how he is. Like, I, I'm a big fan of wrestlers who are distinct in there themselves. And the way that he performs, the way he is, is so remarkable. And it's something that we're now going to be, like, entering a time period where, I, well, as I said earlier, we'll talk about this on a future episode, where looking at, like, the awards for this, only one of his moves makes the uh, top ten most best wrestling maneuvers of 2010 and uh, where is this i'm trying to find it here i'm sawing here for time he is not ranked the best high flyer in the world he's ranked third and this is in 2010 this is in 2010 well there will be a a reoccurring theme as we go along and it starts with (laughs) united philly which i can break down that card real quick but uh, the careers of Pac and specifically Ricochet, are never the same after 2011. And it is, a to me, a calculated effort on the part of Drangate to stick Ricochet in the same ring as Pac for the entire calendar year. And as a result, the Ricochet that you knew at either Freedom Fight 2010 in that six-man tag match, or really even the Ricochet here, becomes a completely different wrestler by the time we get to Freedom Fight 2011. And that is because United Philly, I'll break down the card right now. This is what's coming next week. It is Yamato versus Brody Lee, Jimmy Jacobs versus Rich Swan, a freestyle match with Cheech Hernandez, Jigsaw, Sammy Callahan, Rex Reed, Frightmare, and A.R. Fox. What a list of names. Austin Aries versus Akira Tozawa, B.B. Hulk versus John Moxley, Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano versus Shima and Dragon Kid. And the main event, a match that is free on YouTube. Go watch it now so you can hear us discuss it next week. Masato Yoshida and Pac versus Naruki Doi 
and Ricochet. It's such an insane card. Uh, you you don't you do know who Johnny Meng is, right? Who is this? Johnny Meng, one of the guys in the opener, the 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 dark nine way fray. Oh yes, the the, the nine way fray. That would be Jaka uh, if if my cage match is telling me the truth. Yes, that is Jaka. That is an insane. It's just like a wild card. Looking at this in retrospect, like I'm 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 really excited because I do remember the show and I especially remember the main event. Like this was one this was one of those shows that like I remember watching at the time as we're wrapping this up here. And then, like, as I started watching, especially when I was watching, sadly, the uh, Freedom Gate match, where I was like, oh, yeah, this is that show. Where I ended up, like, liking the show a lot more than I think I did at the time. Like, maybe it was that the Freedom Gate match was so disappointing to me at the time when I watched this live that, like, in retrospect, I'm like, okay, I see what happened here. But I, uh, this was I, an I, exceptional I, show, though. I told you before we went on the air that, up, or not Uprising, United New York City in a weird way felt like what I think of when I think of Dragon Gate USA, where there were a lot of matches that were really, really good in front of a small crowd. And there were one or two segments that just did not work. Right. And it feels like that is the way that the promotion, I don't know if it is remembered that way, but that is probably the way the promotion should be remembered. That it is just a lot of good, some unignorable bad and unfortunately, like I watching that main event, it was like, I don't understand how you can put these four in the ring and have it not draw tons of fans. Like, I just don't know from the indie landscape what more they could have wanted because this show I, just and that main event, I'll pay money to see that main event every month out of the year. I think it's something that BB Kings is not was not a huge venue. It probably I I cannot find legit numbers for the show. I will look in the future to see what other attendances listed for BB King. The only number I have is the work Dragon Gate number. I'm not going to say it on air. It, it's ridiculous, but I think it's that. And I know that Gabe Church higher prices for it being in New York City, and then the overall indie landscape. Like we've talked about before, not in a great place. It was really Chikara that was doing great. So it's interesting though. Yeah, that is something else to monitor as we go along the year, as we will, I guess, be taking a deeper look at Chikara, which should be fascinating. Well, I mean, we do have some stuff going on in Chikara that crosses over that'll be worth mentioning, but it, it's something that, like, there's this weekend, there is the Mania triple shot, and then by that time, we're going to be in Blood Warriors versus Junction 3, where we're really going to hammer on the point of what did Gabe know, what Gabe didn't know, which I find is going to be really enthralling going forward, but... Unless you have anything else you want to add, I did pull up that Dragon Gate in LA card, which if you, well, we could run down this card and probably spend another 30 minutes on it talking about how wild the show was, but I can't think of too much else to talk about tonight. No, quickly run down that Dragon Gate in LA card, uh, just because it came up earlier on the show, and it's a very fun and bizarre card to look at. Yeah, so this show happened in 2008. This, uh, this show happened after the big fallout between Ring of Honor and Dragon Gate. They were not a part of each other, but they ran the show in... Bell Gardens, California. Uh, it is commentated by Excalibur and Disco Machine. I don't, re I don't remember. This is when Excalibur actually started being good at commentary. They were still doing the dumb PWG stick at this time. It's right around the time he starts becoming pretty good. Okay, so this card, uh, the opener is Little Cholo, Infernal, and Junior. Singles match, El Generico versus Ginky Horiguchi. Uh, a very important match in the history of 
Stalker Chikawa's career as he had the Hollywood Stalker Chikawa Bosu 10 match series match fives against against Necro Butcher. This is when he picks up the Hollywood nickname is from the show. A tag match of Dragon Kid and Kendo, who Kendo is one of those lucha guys that was around for a long time. Like I know TJP has talked a lot about Kendo before, but Dragon Kid and Kendo versus my a tag team close to my heart, Kenichi Arai and Taku Owasa. A singles match, the Shingo versus Pac match you mentioned earlier. Opened the Twin Gate match, Ryosuka versus the Young Bucks. And then a Triangle Gate match where it was the real hazard team of Gamma, Yamato, and Yujusi Kanda versus Speed Muscle and BB Hulk. Weird card. Very, very weird card of a very specific point, it seems like, on the Indies <laughs> with the Necro Butcher match and then a very specific time in Dragon Gate towards the end of Typhoon and just everything else that occurred. Very strange, but a very, very fun show. Yeah, the Dragon Kid and Kendo versus the uh, uh, the Araiwa match is worth watching. The, the Shingo versus Pack match. And then, yeah, like pretty much the stuff... After hearing us talk about this, you probably this time knows know what's going on in this show. If you could find this show, it's actually worth checking out because it is a good time. But Case, we went a little longer than I expected this time. I feel like that's a tale that we say each time on this show. But I think that's going to do it here unless you have anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here. As always, I'm on Twitter at underscore in your case. And Mike and I both tweet from the Open the Voice Gate account at Open Voice Gate. And Mike Spears is on Twitter at Fujiheya, two eyes like Don Fuji. I think I have covered it all. Yeah, I think that's it. So until next time when we're going to talk about United Philly, that's going to do it for Open the Voice Gate. Take care, everyone.